Did you ever wonder how some of the greatest people today become who they are? Most everyone has experienced that turning point in their life. It's these moments that forever changed who they were into whom they've become. Today on The Moment with Chris Epting, you'll hear from these people and hopefully be inspired to find your own life-changing moment. Now, here is your host, Chris Epting. Hey there, and welcome to The Moment. I appreciate you tuning in today on what feels like about week 900 in this uh, in this quarantine, but it's not, of course. And, you know, while I know a lot of people are watching, you know, binge-watching binge watching a lot of TV and stuff, I've done a little bit of that, but for me, it's been more about reading. I'm, I'm much more of a reader than I am a watcher, and I've been um, consuming as many books as I can, and certain ones just sort of just raised right to the top. One of those is a new memoir called All I Ever Wanted by Kathy Valentine. You know her from the Go-Go's, of course, I guess once a Go-Go, always a Go-Go, but the book is is about a lot more than that. And uh, I mean, you may know I've written a lot of music memoirs. Uh, I read as many as I can, and uh, so I'm very particular about them. And, and Kathy's jumped out at me as just one of the absolute best in recent memory. So it's a real pleasure to have here today on The Moment. Kathy, are you there? I'm here, and thank you so much for having me and for those kind words. I liked it. Well, I mean it. I mean, you know, as one who does read a lot of these books, you, there are certain things you always look for. One of those is honesty, and, and another one is good storytelling. And the other thing that I that really I loved about your book is how certain things connect. One case in point that I have to start with is you went to a show in 1975. You saw the Rolling Stones on what remains my favorite tour of all time. It was the first concert I ever saw. Uh, was in New York City in uh, June 22nd of that year, and you saw a show a couple of weeks before down in Texas on the memorable tour of the Americas in 1975, and you write about it beautifully in the book, but what's amazing to me is that six years later, you're opening for them, <laughs> and it's those are the kinds of moments in your book that are so interesting because the, these connections that happen after just a few years are, are really startling. I don't know how that felt for you, but as a reader, it was really exciting to, to learn about you being at that show as a fan and then just a few years later opening for the band. Well, and the funny thing is I didn't, I haven't even done the math. I didn't realize it was six years later. I mean, when, when you write it down, you start realizing your sense of time when you're looking back at your history is so warped compared to the reality. Um, things that I thought took a year, you know, were two months, you know, things Yeah. to hear you say that it was six years later after seeing them, that kind of astounds me. Isn't it something? And again, the, the life you were living them too, I, I get that how things are become compressed and you look at the sort of the first arc of the Go-Go's and I think it's a lot shorter than, than most people would think about. Um, but before you even get to the Go-Go's, as we were saying offline before, I found your upbringing, you know, the story of, of you growing up um, as you're becoming a musician, really riveting. That to me is almost a book within a book. It, it's almost like a separate story before you get to Los Angeles. And uh, it was that, that I thought was really beautifully told. There's a lot of pain in there. And getting back to the honesty piece of when these books, books work as well as this one does, uh, at least in my opinion, the, the fact that you're so raw and honest and upfront about what you went through as a young person, I thought was really, really admirable. And I don't know, how, was that tough for you? I mean, you've got a teenage daughter. What was it like knowing you were putting that out in the world? Did you talk to her about it as she read the book? Tell me about her, her reaction to everything. 
Well, um, she hasn't, she knows that it has uh, difficult things and I think she'll read it when she's ready to. She's flipped through. I think she's looked more at the the later stuff, the Mm go-go stuff and things. Um, But it was interesting to write it because several times in the story that I was living a parallel of being a mom to a 15-year-old and writing about a 15-year-old who was running around with drug dealers and, um, you know, having being very promiscuous and doing uh drinking way too much for just things that would have appalled me as a mother so it was weird to have that vantage point and um very very weird and it was very painful but i have to also say that i got to see uh i got to process it for one thing but i also got to see my mom the whole picture and i never wanted my mother to be the villain of the story or to demonize her it was really just the way it was but i hope what Mm -hmm. came across also was that i really did feel loved and i did feel supported you know when i decided to be a musician my mom didn't laugh at me or say you can't do that or that's not going to happen she always supported anything I wanted to do. Unfortunately, that also meant if what I wanted to do was run around like a like a wild child, <laughs> that was okay too. Figure it out, kid. So um, I, I was kind of left to take care of myself, parent myself. And I can't think of too many uh, 13-year-old adolescents that are able to do that very well. And I was no exception. No, and it's funny because when you do, and we'll talk about it, I mean, again, speaking of moments, I mean, there's a moment you sort of open the book with uh, at the Whiskey in late 1980. And, you know, I, I really believe a lot of most people's lives hinge around one, two, maybe three moments that really set the course for their life. You certainly had one of those at the Whiskey that night when you went out and wandered off to go see X who was playing there that night, right? And uh, Exactly. And I'm, I'm so glad you put it that way because that's how I felt too. I felt like... Um, there are, I think I even wrote at one point, it probably got edited out, but I wrote about how we have these life defining moments and there's usually just a handful of them. You know, it might be your wedding day. It might be your divorce day. It might be, you know, a promotion or just being in, in this place at this time. And it's, mm-hmm. it's fascinating to reflect and wonder what other paths we might've taken, or would we have ended up in a very similar place, just with a different journey. It's really interesting. Fate and destiny um, are, yeah. are very strange things. Why don't you d- describe, I mean, for those that haven't read the book yet, we're talking about Kathy Valentine's wonderful new memoir, All I Ever Want. To describe for people that night at the Whiskey and the meeting that you have in the, in the ladies' room uh, upstairs at the Whiskey when you go see X that night. Sure, sure. Okay, so I had moved to L.A. to make it in the music business, and I had been there just a a few years, but I think probably uh, three years. Uh, I had a band, but I'd left the band. It didn't feel like it was going to make it. For the first time since I'd started playing guitar and being in bands, I felt a little lost. Like, what am I going to do? You know, I don't have a band now, and it felt weird. Um, But I, I went to see a show. It was Christmas night, and I met Charlotte Caffey, who was the guitar player in a band called the Go-Go's. Now, I was aware who the Go-Go's were. They were quite popular in the L.A. circuit. Uh, Another funny thing that you'll read later in the book is that I actually saw them when I first moved to L.A. and didn't take them seriously. I was very dismissive. I thought I just said, oh, they've got a long ways to go. And I considered myself quite the pro. You know, I'd been in four or five bands and I just thought, oh, well, you know, they're they're in a different league. They're, I'm in a different league from them. So fast forward two years, 
they're a very different band. They've gotten a great drummer. And I always like to say a band is only as good as their drummer is. Mm-hmm. And they'd gotten Gina Shock. They had played hundreds of shows. They had gone to England and done a very harrowing. And this is a scrappy little band that came out of the punk rock scene. But when I met Charlotte and she said, we have some shows coming up. The shows were five days away, starting on New Year's Eve. And they, she said, our bass player can't do it. Can you play bass? And the timing was just amazing because here I am, not in a band, been kind of free-floating for a couple of months, feeling pretty out of sorts. And I was like, well, yeah, I can play bass. I'll do that. And at first, it just felt like something to do, something to kind of take me out of this, like, a lost place. But I'll tell you what happened. As soon as I got that cassette tape and started learning those songs, I it became very clear to me that this band had great songs. A few days later, I'm in a rehearsal and forget the whole thing that I'm learning a whole new instrument. You know, that's happening too. But I'm in a rehearsal. And for the first time, I find myself surrounded by four other young women who felt as driven and as uh, passionate and excited. We were just like-minded and it clicked immediately. And I have to say, I really wanted to be in that band from that moment on. That's what happened. But I liked starting the book with that because I think I really captured the excitement of what it felt like. Imagine you've come to LA to make it. I'm 21 years old and I've played some gigs. I've had some good things happen, some cool stuff happen that could only happen in LA. But what hasn't happened is being on stage for eight consecutive sold out shows with a crowd going crazy, knowing your songs, that had been the missing part. And that was when I thought, this is it. This band could go, this band could make it, and I want to be in it. It's interesting, too, is you didn't just have to sit in. You had to deliver because they still had, I mean, you were filling in, right? It wasn't as as if somebody had left. You had to be good, and there had to be chemistry there right from the get-go, right? Yeah, and... um, I, I mean, there wasn't like an audition. They, they had shows in, in five days. So once, once I was asked and I said, yes, it was me. It wasn't like I went and tried out. I, mm-hmm. I should, they took a real chance with me. But I think they trusted. I, I was a well-known musician around L.A. Um, mm-hmm. I was known as someone that could play. And, you know, I, I had my own little cachet that, that was appealing to them as well. Um, the reason I started at that moment, because it was such an exciting thing, it was so important to me writing this book that the reader know what it felt like in that moment, because then they're part of the journey with me. And then they understand why it's so important to me and why it becomes so devastating later on in the book when I lose it all. So I'm really glad that I was able to convey what that what those nights felt like. Oh, you definitely did. And I think the other thing you convey, convey in the book that's really important is the how quickly the roller coaster begins. I mean, once you do that sold out set of shows, um, things kick in pretty quickly. I mean, there's not a lot of time wasted and, and you're, it's off to the races. And, well, and it, exactly. And people, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, I was, you, you triggered my, my thoughts because I was so many people say like, it must have been when you went number one that you knew you were successful. And what I try to keep explaining is that actually for me, each thing that happened felt like a wealth, a treasure trove of, of, 
success because number one, finding a cool band, you know, that was, that was huge. Hey, a cool band that can sell out clubs. Great. Hey, a cool band that's got these great, like my best friends in it, even better. Hey, a cool band that now has a record deal. Like each thing that happened felt like, you know, this, if this is as good as it gets, this is great, you know, and then, but it just kept going. It was like the gift that kept giving and giving. And then you're making a record and it's in New York city. And I don't want to tell everything you're going to say, but. No, but you're right. There is this kind of fairy tale element to it where you get whisked away and the carriage takes you away. And like you say, you're in New York. There are great stories in the book about making the record about this first taste that you've got of experiencing life on the road. I, I love how you document um, without giving away too much, how it goes from being a band in a van to when you get a bus and how, how you're progressively charting things by how well you're doing. And we're watching this band just begin to bloom. And it's, it's really exciting because as much as we might know about the band, and, and a lot of us do, there's nothing like an insider's tale of what that feels like to climb on that bus for the first time and have your lounge and your, you know, what, just what that feels like uh, in the moment. Exactly. And, and I think that's the, the key thing right there. It's like, you know, people do hear about it. They, they, they know that the story, they know the narrative, they, especially fans, they, the fans know the story. Um, but I think anybody likes that window into, to, to what it, what it really, really was like and the, the exhilaration and the exhaustion, all of it. And in between talking with Kathy Valentine about her wonderful memoir called All I Ever Wanted. If you have a question for Kathy, we'll take a call a little bit later at 866-472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. Kathy, from a creative standpoint, how different was it for you to write a book versus making music? From a process standpoint, were there similarities? Were there challenges to, to overcome? What was it like for you as a first-time uh, author? It was it was really difficult. There was times I wanted to give up. Uh, it, it's a lot more. You have to sustain the work ethic a lot longer than than I did right. as a writing <laughs> song. <laughs> and um, sure I had to overcome a lot of uh, procrastination and perfectionism. As a as a songwriter, perfectionism can be you know not a bad thing because you know why settle for a line? Why I don't like throwaway lines. You know if I've got a great verse and then this one you know i'd rather be a perfectionist and, and get it right and just take a little longer but perfectionism and writing a book not a good thing um because really you just need to you just need to what i finally learned was just get it out just write a bunch of pages and then i can make it better then i can refine it and stuff and that's not really what i do with songs i don't write a whole song and then make it better i kind of incrementally just as i go through it so that was really different. But I'll tell you the thing that worked really well for me is as an artist, you, you, what makes you who you are as a, gives you your style and your character as a performer or a player or a painter or a writer or anything is what you choose to leave in and what you choose to keep out, you know, mm -hmm. where you make those cuts, what's important to put in, what's important to leave out. And that could be the notes you play on a bass. It could be the notes you play on a guitar or a piano, or it could be the, the words you use. And I found that it really was helpful to have a lifetime or a, a career's worth of experience 
with that kind transitioning that to writing, I understood what that meant. Like, Hey, this is a great few pages. This is a meaningful memory. I wrote it really well, but it doesn't really move this story forward and I'm going to have to cut it out. Ouch. So that was kind of, you know, helpful, but yeah, I, I struggled with it. And also you go much, much deeper into experience than with a song much deeper. And that's, that's wonderful. It was therapy. It was like, the most extensive and cheapest and lonely therapy I've ever had. But that's the cathartic, that's the wonderful thing of writing a memoir is it forces you to go back and confront all of the truth and all the conflict and all, you've, you've got to deal with it all of a sudden, whether you use it or not, you still have to go face to face and toe to toe, right? Uh, yes, exactly. And, and in, in writing a song, it's like, it's so much more important to to not be cliche and to to make sure that it's in a art a crafted and artistic way. Whereas in writing a book, sometimes it doesn't need to be literary or artistic. It just needs to be the words and the authenticity. That's all it needs. Did you keep journals back then on the road with the Go Go's? I have. I was a very sporadic journal keeper. I had. I have uh, stacks of journal books that I wrote in faithfully for a week or for two weeks and then didn't do it for months. So I had lots of that. I had uh, what was very helpful was remember the Filofax notebooks and the day planners we used Absolutely. to carry around before our phones. Well, I, I was pretty active in my little day planners. I would I would scribble down little things that had happened that day or things that were meaningful or I'd stick a backstage pass from a show I'd been to on that page. So I had, I had that chronology of all of those day planners, my journals, and I had kept all the press that we had ever gotten. And it wasn't like I had a bunch of old newspapers. We had a publicist for the entire uh, run of the Go-Go's that first run that mm -hmm. sent us uh you know, Xerox copies. So it was easy to, I have just boxes and boxes of them. And that was surprisingly helpful because every time you'd get into a town, there would be a story about the band and the writer would put their own little thing on it. They'd be like, oh, the bus pulled in and it was snowing and this one was, it's just whatever. I'm just like making stuff up, but they would. No, but details that you need, absolutely. Exactly. And that was, I, I thought that was a surprising help. Listen, we're going to take a quick commercial break. I am talking with Kathy Valentine about her wonderful new memoir, All I Ever Wanted, available on Amazon, wherever books are sold. I'm Chris Epting. This is The Moment. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Chris Epting will be releasing the third edition of his best-selling baseball travel Bible, Roadside Baseball, in June 2019. Academy Award-nominated director Ken Burns said about Roadside Baseball, What a wonderful book. All the stations of the cross of our national pastime are here, big and small, telling and frivolous. I can imagine this book in the glove compartment of every true fan's car. A handy reference to this beloved game, no matter where in the country you are. The new edition features hundreds of new places to discover, more rare photos, stories, and trivia. It's everything you need to plan the baseball road trip of your dreams. Roadside Baseball, coming this June. Available for pre-order right now on Amazon.com. 
every Saturday morning. Listen for the Superstar Sports Talk Block on Voice America Variety. We've got the best programs. If you want to talk football, hunting, outdoors, racing, and more, the weekends belong to sports. And you'll find it every Saturday beginning at 6 a.m. Pacific Time and 9 a.m. Eastern Time. You'll hear from the players, owners, experts, and fans from around the world. It's the Saturday Superstar Sports Talk Block. Wow, that's a mouthful. And it's only on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. Really happy to be sitting here chatting with Kathy Valentine. She, her book, All I Ever Wanted, her new memoir, has uh, got tons of amazing moments. Kathy, one of them jumped out to me. You saw the Sex Pistols on their ill-fated uh, only tour of America down in Texas. What do you remember about that? I mean, you write about it very vividly in the book. It seems like it made an impression on you. Yeah, I mean, I think what I wrote in the book was that we were, all of us that saw that show just felt like we'd seen rock and roll get completely reinvented. And uh, it was, you know, I I had come back from England. I had started the first punk band uh, in Austin, uh, we hadn't even played a show. We played our first show like a week after seeing the Sex Pistols. But uh, to be young, to be, you know, 17 years old, 18 years old, and having punk rock be not only just kind of saying, this is ours, this is our music. And it doesn't take away from all the stuff you love as a teenager. It didn't sure, really sure. not like the Stones. It didn't, but that was a time where, you know, some bands were doing some kind of some of my favorite classic bands were making some pretty like different music. It wasn't their heyday. Let's put it like that. I think I, <laughs> I think I like make fun of the, 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 some of them in the book. So that was like our music. And for me as a young musician, it did even more because, you know, I grew up thinking I was going to be the best female guitar player that that was my goal. I was like, there's going to be, it sounds so funny when I say it now, but it was going to be like, there's Eric Clapton, Jimi Hendrix, Jimmy Page, Jeff Beck, and Kathy. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that was my dream. And I thought that meant that I'd have to be like this virtuoso whiz to get where I wanted to be. And then there's punk rock and new wave. And it's like, no, you don't have to be a virtuoso whiz. You can just have some cool songs and have an attitude and have the guts to just do it now. And it just blew the doors open. And concurrently in LA in the punk scene there, there's a bunch of girls going, Hey, every all our friends are starting bands. We can start bands. Too. Actually it wasn't concurrently. It was a little bit later, but regardless, it was funny that we had these parallel paths, you know, yeah. the, my, my band, my future bandmates were having punk rock was opening up music for them just as it did for me, even though I had been playing for a few years, it, 
it made that route, that uh, journey seem a lot shorter. When the first record takes off, Kathy, the first Go-Go's record, it coincides um, sort of tightly uh, to some degree with the birth of MTV. And, you know, that I know was, was an integral part of things, too, because you, you were all camera ready, obviously, yet you obviously had the material to back it up. Um, I remember when I was writing a book with Phil Collins from Def Leppard, and Def Leppard similarly was part of the new video age, and he would tell me that when they would go to certain towns, he could tell what towns had cable by the reaction to them because they would have seen the videos, they would have had MTV already. And towns that already were wired for cable were way more dialed in to what the band was about. Do you remember what it was like for you when the relationship with MTV took off as it did and the Go-Go's became just part of everyone's everyday experience at home? Well, first of all, I, I can't even believe, like, I forgot that there were towns that didn't have cable. I forgot yeah. that. So that's funny. But anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The what, what I think is that, you know, for a lot of people, I had played in an, I played in an all-female band in England. I'd seen the Runaways. Uh, I, the idea of being a, a, a girl in a band of, with other gals wasn't like mind-blowing to me I'd been doing it for a few mm -hmm. years but to a lot of people the Go-Go's were the very first time they'd ever seen anything like that and right and uh we were we met a, a, a tremendous amount of resistance from radio people we had a great single our first single was our lips are sealed it was a great single but we played over 90 shows with that single out just kind of sitting on the charts and just going up a little tiny bit. It took forever to get that song into the top 30. That was as high as it went was number 26. And um, the reason why is even though we were selling out clubs and, um, and getting tons of press radio programmers didn't want to add us because it was just like, we didn't, we didn't fit the mold. We didn't fit what they thought their listeners wanted. So in comes MTV, along with a lot of college DJs. And, you know, there was always these rogue DJs that were so popular, they could do whatever they wanted. So I'm not going to take away that we had a few people on our side, but mm -hmm. MTV put this band in people's living rooms. And it was almost worked better than hearing us on the radio because they got to see, you know, some young women pretty much having the time of their lives but playing something that people really enjoyed listening to and it was it was fairly revolutionary it absolutely was i still don't think the band gets the credit for as trailblazing as you were people take it for granted now but it's because of what you did it was because of all the road work it was because of putting up with what you had to put up with um, and not getting the most fair treatment but but the Go Go's in, in in a lot of ways were were you know clearly a trailblazing band that you know are remembered uh, for for more than just really catchy hit records. I mean, you worked hard out there to do to do what you did and get everything done. Uh, and the book and your book you know explains that. And another thing you explained that I found fascinating, and you may take it for granted, but you do it in in I think it's less than half a page. You actually break down sort of how payment works from all the music books I've read. I've never read anybody so clearly and succinctly sort of break down what the process is of who gets what. And, and you lay that out there in such a compelling, you know, simple way, because then what it does is it sets up 
the turmoil that then results, right? When you see the first wave of money come in, right? And then all of a sudden it goes from being all fun and games out there to now the stakes change, right? Describe that a little bit because I thought that part of your book was fascinating is what the money did almost instantly in terms of changing the mood of what was going on within the band. Yeah, well, you know, and not to not to um, uh, dismiss any any uh, layperson's confusion. I still get confused about <laughs> mechanical royalties versus this versus you know performance royalties. It, it's not a, a a simple thing. So I tried to break it down really simply and explain because uh, I think most people don't understand how it works and you know what what a royalty is and and how there's so many elements. I mean. There's radio airplay, there's record sales, and there's uh, songwriting publishing versus songwriting license. I mean, there's just so much. So right. I, I did try to explain. And here was what I what I wanted the takeaway to be, because people always talk about the Go-Go's breaking up, even though tons of guy bands have broken up and had plenty of disagreements too. But it seems to be a big part of the narrative people like to focus on with this band. But they always say, oh, it was drugs and ego and this and that. And it was a little bit more insidious than that. And I think like, you know, I've seen this sort of thing happen. I've seen families torn apart because of money. You mm-hmm. know? I've seen, you know, siblings never speak to each other again because they're squabbling over inheritances or this or that. So money it can be a real issue when you are dealing with a family and a band is very much like a family. And the the thing that I wanted to get across is like, everybody's working really hard. It's not one person getting up in the morning after not getting enough sleep. It's not one person going to do the interview. It's not one person going on stage and entertaining an audience. It's not one, you know, but then you have one person that might stay home one night and write a song. Okay. So it becomes a very complex, I just wanted people to understand how complex it is. Mm -hmm. When, when, when you've been out working for eight months and not making a lot of money and you're exhausted and, and yet you're still having a great time, but all of a sudden somebody else that's doing the same amount of work as you save for the fact that maybe a few years ago they stayed home and wrote a song one night, it can, right. it, you know, it can just cause a lot of uh, bitterness and resentment. And I'm not speaking for, and I'm not putting that on anybody in the band. I'm just talking in general ways. Uh, and it became, it just became like the first crack in what was supposed to just be really fun. Hey, we don't have to go work in an office. We can go on tour and write songs and play songs and make a living at it. And people really enjoy what we are doing. And that was such a positive, wonderful thing that that became kind of the one, the, the crack that started making it kind of be not as um as, as as fun or as exciting. Well, I think you wrote about it in, in a very human, very fair way. It's a natural thing that happens when you start to see how things get split up. And like you say, you're all in it together. You're all spending the same amount of time on the road and, and the same amount of stress and all that. But when you break it down by song, it does it can get weird pretty quickly. And I, I just thought that was a very interesting 
part of the book that a lot of uh, you know people don't aren't aware of and don't get that sort of insight in and and what it ultimately leads to like you say it's the first crack it's the first real fracture and from there things start to spider web a little bit and it's we can kind of watch what's happening and we know where it's going and, and i it, think that's the drama yeah. and the conflict of your book gets really high there Yes, and it's not like, you know, I was very clear that it's not, there's not a right or way, right or wrong way. And if, if, and I was one of the, the primary songwriters too, and I knew that I would just be contributing more. So I really felt stuck in the middle. And I wanted that because all I wanted was to keep this band. That's what I wanted. I mm -hmm. wanted this band to stay together. And that meant one, it has to be fun. Two, everybody has to be happy. If so-and-so is not happy because they didn't make enough money, that's my problem now. If right. so-and-so is unhappy because somebody's griping that they want some of their songwriting money, they're not happy. That's my problem. You know what I mean? It was, I like, it was like everybody's problem became my problem because my big issue was like, I got to keep this going. This is a good thing. One in a million gets to this place. I love this band. I don't want it to go anywhere. Don't you dare try to hurt this band, you know, and that became my driving, my driving motivation. Whereas it used to be, I want to make it in a band. Then it became, I got to keep this band. This is, this is one in a million. I don't know if I'll ever get to do this again. And as it turns out, I've gotten to be in a mil not a million, but I've gotten to be in tons of bands, lots of great bands, but I've been in one successful band. I was right. Mm -hmm. Kathy, we have a caller, if that's okay, with a question. Craig from California, what is your question for Kathy Valentine? <laughs> Kathy, how you doing? This is Craig. I just wanted to tell you, first off, I've always really loved your band. I, I think you were one of the few legitimate I don't know what the correct word is, new wave bands to come out in the punk era that wasn't just some MTV fakeness. I've always appreciated that. You know, we're basically about the same age, and I grew up in Huntington Beach in the punk era. And with that being said, I have a question for you, but I also want to say I just ordered your book five minutes before I got on the line because I have a good friend reading it, and she has nothing but great things to say about it. Oh, thank that, you. I, I want to ask you, because I don't even know what would define your band, but I know that you, you, you guys were very talented. You know, I grew up going to house parties and listening to uh, the Runaways play and stuff. And, 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 and you were one of the few all-girl bands that I would really call legitimate. And how do you feel that you guys fit in with the punk era in the L.A. scene at the same time? Well, um, the Go-Go's definitely were, came out of the punk scene and were a punk band. Uh, this was before I joined, mainly. Uh, they were together, I think, about two years before I joined. And, um, but the punk scene was very inclusive in L.A. You have to understand that. There was, there was uh, you could be playing in the Weirdos, or you could be in the Alley Cats, or you could be in, in X, or th there was just so many, there was a, a variety. Every band had its own character, its own personality, and it was just all part of a big scene. And punk was the big umbrella that kind of said, you know, this is about youthfulness and energy and doing it our way, not being some big, overblown, bloated, overproduced, spending millions of dollars on, on you know, records and this and that. So it was a big whole thing. The Go-Go's came out of that. The thing that that makes the Go-Go stand apart 
no matter what you call it, was the songs. The, the band had really, really good songs. And X had really, really good songs. I was always drawn to the bands that had the songs. The Sex Pistols had great songs. Mm-hmm. Damned had great songs. If it was just, you know, it's nothing to take. I'm not taking anything away from a hardcore band that just gets up there and plays fast and furious and is filled with, you know, rage or or whatever that's all cool for if that's your thing but i was drawn to the songs and the punk bands that had the good songs were the ones that i i loved and that's i think that was the the sub sub genre that the go-go's fit in Kathy, when you were, um, you know, I remember, I remember seeing you in college opening for the police at the Boston Garden when I was in school up there. Who were the bands that you opened for that took that you felt were the, the best to open, where took the best care of you? That then kind of showed you when you had bands opening for you how how it's done. Um. Well, I mean, we didn't open that. We did a one-off with the Rolling Stones. We did a one-off with David Bowie. Mm-hmm. We did a, a tour in, in, in um, Europe and in America with the police, and they they treated us wonderfully. I mean, when we when our record went number one, I mean, not number one, when our record passed theirs on the charts, mm-hmm. they went they went out after our set and they said, "You guys, the Go Go's." I mean, they talked about it. Um, <laughs> And they didn't have to. They could have just gone out and done their set, but they they held us up. And I, I one of the things I when I wrote my book, the, a pattern started to emerge that I'd never really verbalized or, or noticed before, and that was how the male musicians that I had encountered almost unanimously were supportive and lifted. Uh, just really helped out. Even when I was starting out in Austin, I got my gigs because guys in bands would say, Hey, you can come open for my band Mm -hmm. or say, Hey, you need a better amp. That's a crappy amp. Let me go. Let's go buy one together. It's like, I got so much support. I'm so grateful for that because there were no other women. I, I had no women to look up to, you know, in Austin. And it was, it was the guys that, that validated me and gave me support and encouragement. And I found that true in the Go-Go's too. I mean, every now and then you'd have somebody be like, yeah, yeah, right. But then they'd see your audience going crazy and they'd, they'd turn nice all of a sudden. <laughs> Wasn't it a guy who first, within the Go-Go's, one of their crew, right, that recommended you or brought your name up initially, right? Well, they knew who I was. Uh, I had been, you know, as I write in the book, females in bands took notice of each other. Right. Um, so they knew who I was, but yeah, I had there. They had a guy working for them who had also worked for the Runaways, who I met in Austin. Mm-hmm. So he he mentioned my name as a as a potential substitute, but it could have easily been someone else. So it was kind of a kismet fate meant to be thing. You have lots of kismet in your book. Speaking with Kathy Valentine about her terrific new memoir, All I Ever Wanted. We'll be back in just a moment after this quick commercial break. Thanks for listening. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Chris Epting will be releasing the third edition of his best-selling baseball travel Bible, Roadside Baseball, in June 2019. Academy Award-nominated director Ken Burns said about Roadside Baseball, What a wonderful book. All the stations of the cross of our national pastime are here, big and small, telling and frivolous. I can imagine this book in the glove compartment of every true fan's car. A handy reference to this beloved game, no matter where in the country you are. 
The new edition features hundreds of new places to discover, more rare photos, stories, and trivia. It's everything you need to plan the baseball road trip of your dreams. Roadside Baseball, coming this June. Available for pre-order right now on Amazon.com. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. Sitting here chatting with Kathy Valentine about her memoir, her new memoir, All I Ever Wanted. Kathy, I think you, you've got so many different stories in here and different, um, different arcs to your life. One of them, obviously, is growing up. Another large part of the book is obviously the Go-Go's. Um, but then, then your recovery, I think, is a whole other set of episodes that is really moving, really painful. Uh, there's a story where you're dating Clem Burke, uh, famed drummer Clem Burke and you go into that relationship and then you go back to New York. I think he's playing a, a gig with Johnny Thunders, right? And, and you kind of, uh, you have a tough night. You have a, a, a tough moment there where you realize you've got to gra- get control of, of some things going on in your life. Talk about that because I thought that was, again, very courageous writing, um, very vivid writing, but um, to come clean on that stuff is it, not easy to do, but you do it. You confront this stuff head on. Yeah, well, I, I knew it was important because um, I, I'm not quite as active on Facebook as I used to be. But for for many years, my biggest post on Facebook would be on the anniversary of my sobriety. And mm-hmm. I would write about uh, hitting bottom and getting sober and what my life was like as a sober person. And that post without fail would get, you know, so many, so much response. And so many people would tell me how that was just what they needed to hear to make them realize that they had a problem and that they wanted their life to change. So I knew that it was really important that I write about this because it it's carrying the message. And um, that's, if I can do that, if I can help one person face the fact that they, it's just, a, it's a huge reaching thing to me. If one person mm-hmm. gets inspired to get sober because of something I've shared of my honesty, then it is, it's just everything to me. So um, I, I knew that it was important to write about. I think it's ironic a little bit because anybody that's familiar with Johnny Thunders knows that he met a, a very sad, uh, terrible end. Mm-hmm. It's ironic that my very last blackout drunk, and I was not a, a blackout drinker. I, I, and for people that aren't like that, that means you don't remember anything. You basically have no idea what happened, and that only happened to me twice in my my drinking career. Uh, I controlled my drinking as much as I could, but it was it had been something that had 
served me for as long as it was going to serve me. And I had started a very young age. I drinking made me feel comfortable. It made me feel like I could fit in. It made me feel, uh, it took away the pain that I, I started drinking because I was in pain when Mm -hmm. I was 12 years old. I started at 12 and I drank heavily for a very long time. At the same time, I didn't drink so heavily that I could say it was ruining my life. You know, I was very, and that a lot of that was luck. I didn't, I didn't hurt anybody in a, in a car accident, you know, and stuff, but it, it took, it took my life just feeling like nothing was working and just having, I tried everything. I had tried putting together the best band I could and finding the best producer and writing the song, but nothing would work. I just felt so, uh, so empty, so empty. And I thought, I, there's nothing I can do. I can't get my career off the ground. I'm completely lost in life. What can change? The only thing I could think of to change was to stop drinking. And I think that a lot of people relate to that because some people, they hear these stories like you stop drinking because, you know, you get thrown in jail or you mm-hmm. get a UI or you lose your job or your family kicks you out or whatever. It wasn't like that for me. It was because my life was so, I was so unhappy and I just wanted one thing to change. And that was, that's, it was like, it just wasn't serving. It wasn't working for me anymore. And that's a, that's a strong message. I like to, for people to hear it doesn't, you don't have to be a falling down gutter drunk to be, to have a problem. It, it might just be that your life isn't working anymore and maybe it's not working for you to do that. Well, it sets up a very redemptive part of your of your memoir as well. I mean, that's what I think makes this such a complete story is that that, that the fact that we get to experience that with you and you you actually you take the reader um, you know along your path of what it was like to begin the recovery process and 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 those first experiences and you're very open about them and for people that don't know how it works again you do I think a really fine job of of laying out what this is like and what it feels like and that's uh, you know I think with a book like this you want to feel like the, the, like you're being taken along for the ride right next to the person you know and you're again the writing is vivid and the storytelling is very detailed and I I, I wonder have you heard you know when the book came out is it something you would hear from fans about that have gone through similar recovery things do you hear that from people um once the book is out that they can reflect or relate to what you went through yes and and one of the things i really like is how many different aspects of the story and uh, several people that read it because they thought it was going to be a story more about the go-go's or because they were a fan of the go-go's and wanted mm-hmm. like insights of course you get that but so many of them have said it was the the, the human story before and after that they were surprised that that they found themselves resonating with and 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 reflecting on and identifying with so that makes me very happy to hear that but yeah I've heard I've heard so many different parts that that people just went oh yeah you know this brought me back to that myself or something and it's as a musician and a songwriter, and a performer, what I've always enjoyed was the connection with people. So to do it as a writer and succeed at that is, is a, a, something that makes me very uh, fulfilled. You have certain, uh, again, getting back to moments, there are certain run-ins. You have one with Bob Dylan I found just fascinating. Um, you're, I believe it's up in Malibu when you're, you're working up there, right? And um, 
and, and you see Dylan and he makes an observation to you. I, it seemed like in the book like, that it caught you off guard, that he was aware as he was about you. And it was a comment about the bangles, right? Yeah. And it, it was uh, Dave Stewart from the Arrhythmics house. And he, he had this great house and he would have these parties and he, he knew all these really cool musicians and he was a friend. So I kind of, when I was feeling like this big loser, the, all the other Go-Go's had careers going after the Go-Go's and I didn't, I couldn't get anything going, but Hey, I got to go to Dave's house and meet <laughs> cool people. So it's like kind of a little, um, a little, what do they call it? A panacea or something, a little bandaid on the, uh-huh. on the but uh, yeah. And I was never a starstruck type person. I mean, it's not that I'm not a, a fan or don't appreciate someone's artistry. I just feel like if I'm ever in the position to meet them, you know, it, it doesn't really serve a conversation well to be, you know, genuflecting and whatnot. So I was I was pleased to to meet him, and it was the only time I met him. But what what you're referring to was he he I was surprised, like he knew. I, I think he knew that I had been in the Go-Go's or something. And, and I told him that, you know, I had a new band or this or that. And then he just kind of said, it must be hard for you. It must be hard for you uh, watching your band fall apart and seeing uh, this other band who was the Bengals, who were enormously successful. You know, they had gone on and it shouldn't be like there's only, you know, one at a time or anything. Of course. But in our absence, you know, they had they had uh, a, a big record deal, and I think Prince had written uh, Manic Monday for them, and right. and they had a lot more international success, and they they were just they were just rocking. And I was, it's not like I was jealous or bitter. I'm I'm I wanted women to make it in the business. I always have, but I didn't want to be like on the sidelines, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was just kind of insightful that he would would notice that. None of my friends had ever said that to me. You know? Yeah, I thought it was I thought it was really interesting. And again, that that's that's it's one moment of so many in this book. I mean, when you when you finally finish the book and you look back over it, how do you take stock of your life? I mean, obviously the go go's are a big part of it, but but they're not all of it. You've got all of these other relationships and and, and things that have happened certainly after the go go's. Um, a memoir isn't supposed to be your entire life. It's certain key moments. I feel like when you get to the end of your book, I, I can easily imagine a second book. In, in, in the pipeline is it something you've thought about I, I don't want it's a bad question when you've just finished a book but it's so easy to imagine given the quality of storytelling that you've got another you know the, the rest of the story piece in you have you thought about that at all um yeah actually i i knew from the beginning of writing this book that there would be a second memoir um for one thing i've I've read a couple of authors that have done an amazing job of writing books on different sections of their life uh, mm-hmm. Not not so much um, music memoirs, but Mary Carr, uh, Augustine Burroughs, sure, wonderful memoirs that that just take little slices of life and where the lessons are different and the journey is different. But if you like, if fans and readers like the voice, they can know that they're gonna see, they're gonna get to hear more from that voice. Uh, you know, people that read my book that that like the way I write and that feel like they've got some kind of um, knowledge about my journey and are interested because may, they recognize themselves. And that's what, that's what connects, you know, a reader and an author is you recognize something that, that, uh, 
that that is meaningful to to you. So I do want to write a second memoir. I I don't know when, and it's not. I mean, I sometimes I think I should just dive in now, but sometimes I think, oh, I should do something else and then do it. But I have a very different journey. Some of the same characters are in it. I still am in the Go Go's. We've had a lot of ups and downs since that 1990 that I know people are interested in. Mm-hmm. It's a, a rare thing that it, it's its own story that, but my mom has still in my life and has had some very, it's been and being a mother and, uh, but the real message of my next book would be about how I think so often we, as age, as we age, we come to a place like where we have to find our place in the world again. And what are we trying to be relevant or do we just want to be fulfilled? And and how do you do that? How do you manage those, those years when you're maybe your kids have gone out on their own uh, lives, or maybe you're, you've retired and what everything you've worked for is now, you know, come to come to its end. And you, what do you do now? So I, I really am intrigued by the message of how we keep, engaged and productive and challenged and the, all those things that drive us when we're young i don't think they have to go away when we get into those last months of, no god take that <laughs> <laughs> those last decades of our lives um kathy lastly for me what did your mom think of the book or, or how does she feel um about the story you told and you know what, what was her full take on the book well um I'll preface it with saying that I, I was very, uh, I was very taken with writing a story that had the elements of good storytelling. And mm-hmm. classic storytelling has an arc, it has a protagonist, and um, that comes out a changed person. And a lot of classic storytelling has, you know, an antagonist or a villain. And I didn't want my mom to be that role. That is not what I wanted. At the same time, I thought it was a very important and uh, deep part of my story at, that explained why it was so important to me to, to, to take care of my, like, I felt like nobody was ever going to take care of me. That's how I felt because no one did, you know, my mom loved me and she supported me and food was on the table and shelter was above my head, but I did not feel taken care of. It was my job. That was my job. And I thought it was really important that the readers understood where I came from to know how meaningful it was and how devastating it was to lose what I was able to achieve. So I told my mom, I said, I need to write about this stuff. And she, she really earned so much of my respect. And I think she's, I've always thought she was brave. I've always thought she was fearless, but the flip side of that is reckless and irresponsible. And she earned so much of my respect because she, it was more important to her that I tell my story and from my perspective and my experience rather than her look like the mo- a, p- a perfect mom or the mm-hmm. mom she was. And it gave me a good lens to see her, all of the whole, um, her whole parenting. Well, it, it, I think it, it gets to the course and theme of honesty in the book. I've been chatting with Kathy Valentine and uh, her, her memoir, All I Ever Wanted, is, is a wonderful read, highly recommended, out from the University of Texas Press, available everywhere, right, Kathy? I mean, Amazon, obviously, but uh, wherever books are sold, folks can track down the uh, audio version, the hardback version, whatever they would like, and I highly recommend that they do. 
Yes, thank you. And and I'm also plugging for the indie bookstores that are really struggling. Yes. And a lot of them are, are able to ship out and get it out just as fast, if not faster than Amazon. Fantastic. Great message. Support, yes, support the indie bookstores. Thank you for mentioning that as well, Kathy. Kathy, thank you for an amazing hour. I really appreciate it. I'm Chris Epping. This has been The Moment. And uh, check out All I Ever Wanted. And I will be back here next week. Thanks. Thank you for taking a moment out of your busy week to join us for The Moment. Be sure to join Chris Epting for another edition every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.